I'm not a lion whisperer. There is no such thing as a lion whisperer. I'm sorry. You just learn how to work with these animals, but you're not a lion whisperer. If anybody can speak lion, please come teach me. I've never learned how to speak lion. I can just communicate what I want, but I've never <laughs> learned that language yet. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Good Stories. Today, I have a co-host. Drumroll, please. My sister, Ava. Hi, thank you for having me. Hello. We both experienced an eye-opening two months together. Yes. About four years ago, in 2018, we volunteered at a wildlife conservation rehabilitation center in South Africa. And it is headed by Anthony, or as we call him, Ant Peniston. And he is our guest today, and we are so excited to have him on. But I felt that we needed some recap. We needed some background exposition to give the listeners, because when we have him on, we're going to just dive straight into everything and um, probably should take a step back. And it's probably good for us, too. When we, we were in South Africa for two months... I came back and had three days to pack and go to college. Yeah. So we immediately separated after being stuck together for two months straight. Stuck together. Going through just interesting interesting times. And we didn't really even talk about it with each other, rehash what happened until... I'll tell you, it's probably closer to a year later when we're like, hey, do you remember Africa? (laughs) Or was that just a fever dream I had one day? So where were we in South Africa? We were in all days South Africa. It's closer to the border of Botswana than it is to, um, say, the South Coast, which is where most people are familiar. I'm excited to have Ant on to just even explain why he was there. Like, why did he and his family choose all days? Um, He wasn't from there, so I'm confused how this even started. And this is probably going to be a theme. Ava and I showed up and we stayed for two months and We didn't even know what was going to happen that day. Sometimes not even that hour. Sometimes not even that hour. The only thing that was guaranteed to us was meals. Which is nice. Yeah, um, I'm not complaining. French fries every meal. I just knew how to have French fries every (laughs) meal. That was my single steady thing. And Ant has a pretty wild background. Uh, I keep saying the word wild. (laughs) Um, But yeah. A little pun ping. A pun ping. That's so funny. Um, so and started a school, which was the most low key thing. Yeah, because we were on the lion project and it was a lion rehabilitation center. But even the lion rehabilitation center had a lot of other animals. Ava, who mm-hmm. were they? Um, we had Nina the hyena. We had two tigers, uh, Tigger and Jasmine, Albie the albino lion, mm-hmm. Cheeto the cheetah, two servals it's so weird that when you go to another place they just have a completely different set of animals Mm -hmm. like here there are deer everywhere like that's the common there are deers there are cows there was kudu yep elons Mm -hmm. bush babies and is truly an embodiment of sowing goodness in your community he did so many things that he didn't have to um he just loved loved working with animals he can track so well whenever we would go on drives he would look at scats which is 
animal droppings and be able to tell you which animal it came from. He could look at their tracks, tell you an entire story of what happened, which animal the tracks belonged to. Let's talk about feeding the lions because that was the part of the project that I disliked the most in the beginning and it became my favorite part by the end. We get to South Africa and one of our primary things is feeding the lions and it's always chickens and we would load all of these chickens into crates. Dead chickens. Yes, dead chickens. Where do we get the dead chickens from? Everywhere. 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 And we would load these dead chickens. And if you're wondering right now, do lions eat chickens? (laughs) They eat meat, and chicken was the best thing we could find. If Ant got a call saying that the alligator farm next door had chickens going bad, he'd run over there and take them. We would go on like three-hour drives to get a truck full of chicken. It's going to sound crazy, but we were at a hunting camp. Mm -hmm. He who shall not be named was a hunter who owned these lions the cheetah, the servals, which are like cats. And Ant had heard of the horrific conditions that these lions were in. And when we saw them, you could see their ribs. So it was a hunter-owned reserve. But Ant had basically claimed the lions. He made a deal where he could look over and manage the camp, like... All of the lions. Mm-hmm. He could. He would bring in his own food. He would take care of them. He would patch up the enclosures. In this scenario, these lions are literally starving to death and they're going to be sold for canned hunting or for Eastern medicine. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And and fought tooth and nail to get as many lions as he could and take them to his Botswana reserve. So I'm going to save that story for Ant to share in more detail because I'm sure he'll tell us things that we haven't even learned. Mm-hmm. Feeding is definitely something Lexi wasn't, she wasn't ready to do when she first came. I remember I showed up and I was like, okay, feeding the lions, let's go. You try to wear gloves and essentially it's frozen chicken. Oh my God, they were frozen in chicken. Crates. So when we started... There's some semblance of order and the chickens were all in crates. And so we'd be reaching it. We'd be like banging it to get it unhooked. And then we'd just toss it in from the back of a truck. And Lexi was, I'll be inside the truck. I'll sit inside the truck. I'll take notes. And so I was the note taker. We'd be throwing chickens and just do as many rounds as we had chicken for i sat with the vegetarians yes the vegetarians yeah because the vegetarians weren't going to one of the vegetarians one did vegetarian feed, did but the others were like i'm not touching the dead chickens yeah so i sat with them mm-hmm. um and yeah you could try to wear gloves and i tried to wear gloves so i went from sitting in the car to like okay you guys like need help so i'll come help i'm gonna wear gloves it doesn't work Oh my god! And then like the frozen chicken talons would tear yep. through the gloves because so there was like whole chicken. So then there was just a point where I took the gloves off, and literally I threw and figuratively, literally and figuratively, I took the gloves off, tossed in the dead chickens. Mm-hmm. I remember when it happened. We were standing in the back of this truck, full of chicken, and that was like just up to like our knees, and just throwing it out there, and it wasn't. 
the feed wasn't going the best. It was we were behind. There were lions that were trying to like climb out. And to if get you food. missed, oh my god, the lions, the climbing lions. So so the lions would climb the fence, which is why we put the electricity up. Mm-hmm. But the electricity was faulty. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And then the days where the electricity was not working and not we were feeding, days. not good days. They're hungry. They're ravenous. So they're trampling over one another to get to oh my god to get to the fence. If we weren't fast enough with feeding, like if the they chicken was too out. frozen, I remember the days where like in the beginning we had to really learn timing. If you don't have a crate, if you don't have like two crates of chicken ready. already ready to toss in and they were like still frozen and you had to try to break them up mm. and you're like stomping on the chickens to break them apart. If you're halted in front of one of the lion enclosures, they're climbing the fence. They're going to try to get over. Mm-hmm. Oh God. And I just remember the lions were climbing it or was, if you missed, people would miss the miss throwing the chickens over the fence and they would fall in at the front of the fence or get stuck or in get the barbed stuck wire at, the, at top. the top. Yeah. So then they would be pawing through. Oh, my God. I remember Ava getting out of the truck, going to go grab it. And one of the lions paused, like reaching through the fence, barely missing her head. I I remember it so I <laughs> her life flashed before her fell eyes. and so here's the fence I was like Eva here's the if chicken you but get eaten by is, a lion mother would never forgive me you're not I doing that saw again like five lions trying to get through the fence to get to that chicken yeah and I was like that is so dangerous so I jumped out of the truck which isn't dangerous at all reached as quickly as I could to grab that line. I remember pulling chicken. or grab the chicken. I remember pulling it. And as soon as I pulled it out, a paw reached out <laughs> right to where my hand just was. Get inside, get the, inside truck. the truck. And I'm like, you get it's out the here. Equivalent of like, you're on a boat in the ocean and there are sharks swimming around you. You threw chum into the water and then you jump out of the boat to go swimming. <laughs> to grab the chum though. To grab it the chum. purpose. There was a purpose. Morale got low at some point. Yeah. We kept thinking, we don't know how this is going to end. We have no idea if we're able, if we're going to even be able to relocate these lions to Botswana, mm-hmm. to Ants Reserve there. What were some of the hardest times that we experienced? I mean. I mean, we both know. Are we going to talk about Nemo? I think it's important to talk about Nemo. So this used to be a goat enclosure. So the space between them was about waist high and lions can jump that. And as we learned, I never really thought of lions as jumping, but yeah, these lions jumped a lot. They were learning and it was terrifying to see. It was like a giraffe saying they're learning. It, It was a full, like it was a Jurassic Park moment when... You see, like, the velociraptor try at the door handle. There's one lion originally that could jump. Right. And would do because it to we get were, food. Yeah. Because we would feed one enclosure, then we'd go over to the next one and feed them. And so we kept counting, and we're like, these numbers aren't adding up. Oh, right, because we would, we would parse out the number of chickens per number of lions in each enclosure. And then when we'd get to the next one, we're like, there were seven here, now there are eight. Our numbers keep changing. And finally, we realized one lion was jumping between them to get more food. And as soon as one did, the others were like, this lion's on to something. So that was one jumping lion scenario. And then Nemo. 
So this was a more dangerous situation that we didn't think it was dangerous at first. Yeah, because he had a buddy or something like that on the other side that he would hang out with. So at first we were like, that's funny. Oh, he's just hanging out with his pals. And we were like, integration of the two line enclosures. Like, that's why we like we called him Nemo, because he was was just swimming around. He was just going around doing his thing. I forget how we ended up there. I'm already sad. We were working on adding a big enclosure and we divided half the group to go feed and the other half to stay and keep working on the enclosure. And I was in the feeding group and I, I think you were in the enclosure, like you were yes, building. Yes, I was building the enclosures and I heard a noise from the opposite end of the camp and like it sounded like some yelling, but also there's so much yelling when you're feeding. There's just so much going noise. on. It's chaos, pure and utter chaos feeding. And Matt, one of the volunteers, like sped up in the truck mm-hmm. and Eric was there, Eric, the manager. And he like talked to Eric and Eric jumped into the truck and then they drove around the enclosure and circled back to the opposite end. I was alert. I was cautious. I was like, this doesn't feel right, but I don't know, maybe it's nothing. 10 seconds later, I registered the sound as yelling. And I thought the worst. I thought Ava is being eaten right now by lions. They are screaming. And then once I heard that it was screaming, I really heard like it. Like all then. you heard was. And no one else, everyone else was like, it's fine. It's just feeding. There's always something going off a little bit. And I, I took off. I dropped all of my materials and sprinted down the dirt road to the opposite end of the camp down to you guys. And the yelling got louder and louder as I ran closer and I thought Ava is gone. Mother is going to kill me (laughs) and Ava's gone. And then I see you in the truck standing and I was just like, Oh my God, because I'm also very winded, but also I was like, okay, she's alive. Whatever's happening, at least you're okay. Mm -hmm. I'm still sprinting closer and I'm like, what is going on? They're just like yelling at the enclosure. I look over and Nemo's neck is in the mouth of one of the biggest lions in the enclosure. I I remember we were feeding and we went to the one enclosure that Nemo would jump into a lot and it was just we noticed a lot of activity. I remember we just saw like the lions were just moving around a lot which is not abnormal for feeding, but normally they start off kind of lethargic. And then once they realize it's feeding time, they get active. And we noticed just a lot of activity. We were throwing in chickens and we realized they weren't coming to get the chicken. Like one Which was... Is strange. The um, smaller ones were probably going for we're the chicken. We're getting the chicken, but there's still activity. And then we started looking closer and we realized Nemo was in there and that he was trying to escape, but yeah. couldn't. And yeah. that the other lions were attacking him because he wasn't where he was meant to be. When I got there, Nemo had already lost. Yeah. They had already had Nemo's neck and it wasn't a quick kill. Like with lions, and we were learning about this later, uh, if they want to eat, they just kill. But this wasn't to eat Nemo. This was a territorial I am possessing you. I I own you. I also remember Aunt saying, since they're like, they, 
don't really know how to kill. Like, yeah, they they didn't really know how to kill. Like, they didn't just go for the, like it wasn't clean, it wasn't quick, and it was a slow, a heartbreaking part was when we had to give up. Yeah, was when there's like the chicken wasn't doing anything, our screaming wasn't doing anything, and we just had to stand there and watch and it was like just like it was like a car crash it was like there's nothing we could have done to help yeah so we just but like we weren't just gonna like and and we were like calling and but the connection's bad and and this was at the end of the day yeah and so and was going home or like to a meeting or something and then he came back we were also so used to and like he can just make anything happen we were like what can something must be able to be done we were in that mindset where if you want to do something if you want to fix something like we, we can, can fix it this was the first time where it was like there's just nothing like we were truly helpless the best was had of you mm-hmm. you can't like and it was like we f- were we fighting a losing battle we kept doing so much we tried to fix the fence um and then the line just got better at jumping and we tried to fix the wiring, and that didn't stop it. And the lions are jumping over in the other one. And and we have new lions coming in, and we need to make sure they have a place to stay before they come. There was just so much going on, and then it was just in that moment we lost. Mm-hmm. And seeing Nemo stop struggling and just lie. And Nemo was just just seemed like a sweet friendly and that's us humanizing him especially given the name nemo but he just had a pal there and just loved to say hello and he was friendly and he was a smaller lion he was like one of the lions that when ant would come up to the gate he'd come up and try to brush against the gate um and say hello to ant and then to just see him lose lose the battle and Mm -hmm. just stop fighting and just lie there as slowly his neck was being broken Mm -hmm. and us to also have to like do the same yeah like as soon as we saw nemo stop and like stop trying like like he's done the fight not died it was a tough day yeah and um it was also a reminder that these are wild animals yeah and it was they shouldn't be here yeah and then as much as we like Gave them names, humanized them. Like, oh, it's so cute how he like he wants to go visit his pal next yeah. door. Like, at the end of the day, that's there are pride rules. Yeah, this isn't what's supposed to be happening. This yeah. many lions shouldn't be that close to each other. They shouldn't be there at all, but they were, and that's why Nemo died. We had to remember that we inherited a truly difficult position to be in, and we're doing the best that we can and sometimes we're gonna lose but I think that also reinvigorated us that was like a wake-up call and a reminder of where we are we are in the wild yeah and this is not Disneyland this is not a voluntourism opportunity Mm -hmm. where it's gonna be fun and happy and you're not gonna see the real side of things we saw the real side and it was dark at times and scary and daunting but seeing aunt and his family and 
volunteers and people in the community too. They don't need to do any of this, Mm -hmm. but they're doing it to try and make a difference and try to be a better community than they had been and to not turn a blind eye to animals suffering. When the lion jumped into one of the other lion enclosures, we're like, are we about to get a repeat? We cannot have this happen again. And I think we fought so hard for that junior because we're like, we couldn't save Nemo, but we can save you. And you're so dumb. You're not even jumping. You're not even trying to save. You're not even trying to save yourself. Like, do you not understand the threat? It was really, it was just like, help us help you, please. (laughs) So that was all day South Africa. That was all day of South Africa. That was two months of our life. We have not gotten an update from Ant essentially in the last four years. So it's like a little mystery that you guys <laughs> will be unraveling with us. And I do often think about them like, what happened? Where are they now? Like when I'm in the office or when I'm doing something, I just think about the time I was standing in the truck bed in South Africa tossing dead chickens into lion enclosures how weird is that oh there are just so many memories and just it's such a crazy thing to think about but yeah it was a wild time in our lives um and i miss it and i'm and i'm <laughs> excited to talk to ant he's lived so many lives anyway here's ant ant hello i am so excited to have you on yeah. Well, <laughs> it's been really cool. I've been watching your progress as well. It looks like you guys are up to some really nice things there. Thank you. The reason I wanted to have you on um, is because you have such an awesome story. You and your family are just such lovely people that we... <laughs> lovely people. Lovely. It was like, it's so weird we're complimenting Anne so much. <laughs> yeah, this isn't the usual dynamic. This isn't the dynamic. <laughs> um, I don't know how to react just to this. It's too nice. I've grown a lot in four years, and but uh, a part of our mission at So Good is uh, sowing goodness and creating a positive impact in our communities. And you did that in every single field. Just every single day, you were just doing something different, Um, and it was a really difficult time sometimes and I really felt for you especially looking back now because there are so many hard decisions that you had to make and so many difficult situations and it's like there was an emergency in every area and it was like pouring water out of a sinking ship um but then you brought like so much hope and happiness to the community and the biggest takeaway I had was you didn't need to do anything that you did, but even if you made a difference to just one child, one student, one lion, um, it makes all the world a difference to that life. So uh, I and both Ava and I look back so fondly on our experience with you guys. Um, And those two months have carried so much weight for us even four years later. So last time we saw you- A lot has happened. I know. Last time we saw you, um, we were on... By the way, can we say, Walter? Ava and I have not. We've just been saying. <laughs> he, a mysterious businessman. A man. mysterious man. <laughs> flew in from these. Let's just keep it to his first name. Um, I have no more... I don't hold back anymore because he broke all our agreements. So we'll keep it on the first name. We won't go into his surname, but we can say his first name. Okay. Perfect, because I don't remember his last name. I don't so think I is... ever knew his last name. Perfect. It was just always Walter. 
Um, anyway, he who shall not be named is now Walter. <laughs> and um, yeah. when we were there, actually, why don't you explain what the beginning stages of the Lion Project was and how it all came about to when Ava and I saw you? Well, I, I knew about a, a lion farm in old days. I'd, it had been there for a while and it had a, a bad reputation. Some of the people in old days enjoyed it, but most people knew it was a bad place. And I, I avoided it. I never wanted to go there because I knew I'd see some stuff that I wouldn't be able to accept. And one day I was forced to go there for other reasons, not for lions. And the guy managing the place decided to give me a tour while we were there. And I saw what was happening. And I came home that night and I said to Emma, we've got to do something. We can't, we can't leave it any longer. So I approached Walter, the owner of the farm, and said to him, if he gives me the rights to the lions, meaning he can't shoot, hunt, or, or hurt them anymore, or breed them. He wasn't supposed to breed either. That I would then take it over and run it as a sanctuary and get all the lions up to a good state of health, clean up the facilities, enlarge them, because animals were in terribly small little camps. I don't think you guys saw the original camps. I mean, we were talking 10 lions in 25, square, 25 meters. Um, it's tiny. And there was no floor. They were walking on feces and urine it was just caked feces and urine so i approached him and explained what i wanted to do and the first time he said no he chased me off the place he was quite rude to me and then he called me back one day and i think things are really getting even worse than they were before so i agreed to go back into the the idea but it had to it, it evolved quite a bit so i had to rent the whole farm the lions his tourism operations which were all failing and i paid about 700% more than the going rate in the area for rental. So I had wow. to really rent the place at crazy rates just to get in there for the lions. And the only reason we went was for the lions. Why did he agree to this arrangement with you? He was in, he, he was in financial trouble. It, just, it was clear he was in serious financial trouble. He was getting into a lot of trouble with uh, the SBCA, the Society for the Protection or for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And I had to sign for this property for a year and also I had to buy some of the lions so i had to buy all the younger lions to make sure that they didn't end up in the industry and that if this all went wrong i could at least remove the younger ones and then we ended up uh, starting the purchase of 44 lions which was a hell of a big thing um yeah. Yeah. after we signed the agreements i went in for the first time and then i was really shocked it, it was worse than i'd seen it before that some of the animals couldn't stand up they were so starved they were dying so when yeah. we threw food over the fences they couldn't get up to go collect the food. We literally had to throw food at their heads and hopefully it would land in front of them and they'd try and eat. And we never lost any animals. They, they, they did all make a comeback, which was really nice, but it was extremely stressful because once we got over the, the immediate threat, which was their health, I suddenly realized how bad the situation was with no space. The competition, the lions were trying to kill each other because they had no space. They were so food stressed and food starved that even though I'd got them to normal weight, they started, they would attack each other. When you when you arrive, so feeding was stressful, and you could see us feeding from five six hundred meters away. You could just see the dust rising in the bush because the lions were going so crazy. I remember this. I remember the dust, and that meant that they were up and they were active and they were ready to yeah. eat. Um, and I also you remember, remember them you... trying to climb through the fences. Yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. All I remember is that one time I dropped a chicken right outside the fence. And they were all pawing to get through it. And I reached and grabbed the chicken right before just a <laughs> paw went straight through. And Lexi just screaming at me from the front of the truck. 
Get back yeah. in the truck. So that, Do not get out was. of the truck during feeding. Um, that's how it was the entire time we were there. Everything we were doing was right at the edge just before disaster. And I was I, I obviously I had to explain to you there were some risks and dangers, but the whole time that you guys were there, I was trying to hide how bad the situation was, the outlook. Not not so much your safety, that, that I knew yeah. that I could control, but the outlook was just getting worse and worse. We'd fix one thing and another thing would just totally collapse because it had never been maintained. We had lions breaking through, almost killing each other. Eventually, one did kill another one. Um, a group killed one. It, it was just mayhem. And we're trying to balance to not look too much at how bad things were and just try and focus on the immediate keeping them healthy and safe and focusing on the big picture, which was to eventually fix that place up, which in the end we did. We managed to do it. Um, yeah. We had some form crews come out. And even though it wasn't what they expected, it's not a safari park, they were... They were not unimpressed by the, the neatness and the size. We, in the end, we over doubled, we more than doubled the capacity. And at a certain point, it came time for us to have to complete this and remove our 44 lions to a new property. Um, because where we were, I mean, having agreements, I, I didn't fully trust what, the, what his end goal was. So I knew I'd remove our 44 lions and I'd still care for the others as long as he'd let us. And... What we had done is we were paying in stages, obviously, to buy 44 lions at commercial line. It wasn't fully commercial, but it was it was in the millions that we had to pay, and we were raising this. We started, we, we, we were in the process of paying, and when it came to the final payments, which was the major payments, he, he more than doubled the payments on these. And he came up wow. with some stupid argument that, you know, that when we agreed on this, that was a year ago, all the lions were small. Everybody knows big lions will cost more money because they're worth more. And I said, but that's why we paid the deposit when they were small. And that's why I spent all this money looking after all of them. And we still managed to care for the lions for another three months after that. And I just decided that, look, we're just going to have to look after these lions and slowly get this right to get the lions onto us and into our name. And in that period, we had another huge falling out, a ridiculous falling out. Um, and I was barred from coming back onto the property. So oh. that all happened very fast after that. And then within a space of months, everything just unraveled. The lions were back in the state of starvation. He got into lots of other issues. And there was one incident where there was a fire on the farm. And the lady looking after the farm who has no lion experience would every now and then would call me and say, I need help. But because he was so angry and so anti me, I had to sneak food in. So I would go get food for the lions. Then I would have to meet her at our school transfer all the food onto the truck so she could get it back so she didn't have to say the food came from me because it was so anti-me and the lions were starving. Anyway, so one day there was a fire on the farm and I could see it when I was driving around the farm around the outside. And I called and said, let me come and help. I see that, that, that if I estimate that the fire is very close to the lions. And she said, no, she's not allowed to at all. If he finds out that I've been on the farm, there's going to be huge trouble. So I left it and I called some of the farmers to see if they would go help. And none of the farmers would help because they're all very angry with him. I called her back and I said, you've got to let me on this farm. This is going to be a tragedy. And she said, no, she can't. She's going to get into trouble. And I had to explain to her, can you imagine that fire rips through that farm now and a hundred lions are burned to death? The, the fallout, don't, you don't have to even worry about the animals. The fallout, the trouble you're going to be in is far worse than if you let me in to, to come and help. So eventually she gave me permission against his she did ask him again. He said no. She gave me permission. And uh, I went on. And that was the first time I'd seen the lions in a long time. They were all not looking very good. The camps were back to no electrics working. The fences were broken. Lions were breaking through. Back to that whole stage again. Um, but I, I focused on the fire. 
and it nearly got out of control. We managed to kill the fire. And then it turns out that I'd, that he was really angry that I'd gone onto the farm and stopped the, the fire, which is insane. But it just shows you the, the way of the people in this industry yeah. think there's no regard for the animal's welfare. Without anybody knowing, the lions were confiscated, sent to another hunting farm, which is really sad. Um, but at least they're being well looked after. The place that they at, the facilities are good, but the outlook is bad. Um, but uh, the Wait, lions so were removed which from him lions? And, which lions were taken? All forty-four? All the lions on Walter's farm were taken, and and on his other properties as well. He's all his lions have been confiscated. He's not allowed to have predators anymore. He's left. He's in another Ooh. country now. So wow. yeah, that's that's how it all ended up. Um, it's really sad. I wish it could have ended differently, but it didn't. But I do know that we did save those lions' lives, and we stopped them from. You know, it's one thing to die if you're being euthanized, but it's another thing to slowly die to death in your own feces and urine. There, yeah. There's certain things that are more acceptable than others. So, of course, I advocate against it. I don't believe in any type of this stuff, but at least we did what we did. We did change the situation. Only a few people ever saw what we did in there. A lot of people have a lot to say. They go, oh, well, they should have just been left. Let those lions die once and for all. But somebody like yourselves, you guys saw what we were dealing with. And you can't just simply walk away. Either you, you put them down fast or you fix it, but you don't. You can't leave that. And my problem with the whole situation was even the guys that were trying to do the right thing, the only way they could do it is things had to get so bad that they get confiscated. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. For me, it was tough to say, okay, well, let's let lions die of starvation before we, we've, now we've justified to step in. That's just ridiculous. So it ended the way it did. I know we did some really good stuff there. It's led us onto other lions that were also in trouble. So we've rescued a whole lot more lions. Um, and also there you'll see some crazy footage. Uh, somebody's filmed it and hopefully it'll be released soon. And I mean, we went and rescued 10 lions out of a, a, a vehicle shed. They'd been kept in a vehicle shed for months. They hadn't seen light. <laughs> Stuff we see is just, it's just insane. Um, so we managed to get those lions out of there and we're working with other lions. So yeah, it's led us to different opportunities, but I, I think I still believe that what we did was the right thing there. And we fixed a really, really bad situation and made it less bad. And at least the lions had decent facilities. You had so many tough decisions to make. And I definitely saw how morale could get low during our time there. And you were so good at managing everything and staying calm. At least in front of all the volunteers, you stayed really calm and every disaster that came on or anything uh, difficult that happened, you just automatically thought, what can we do? How can we solve this right now? And then also think of a longer term solution. And there's always those two things that were in our minds, like how can we fix the problem right now? And then also keep the long term goal in mind. I think we all kind of understood that we have no idea what the outcome of this is going to be. We have no idea how this is going to end, but these animals are suffering right now. And how can we help? And I was looking at pictures from our first day there to our last day there. And it was such a difference. Like they were just fully, you could see all their ribs and they were so skinny when we first got there. And towards the end, they were moving around a lot more and they had bulked up. Um, so, yeah, I we definitely saw the stress that you were under and think that you handled it 
as best as you could. And we definitely felt as crazy as everything was, like escaping lions. We still felt safe with you and trusted anything that you decided and did and backed it. Um, Yeah, I think that was something actually really interesting that you're able to do. You were able to instill such trust in us. Um, And I'm not a very trusting person, just like naturally. But then when you were like, okay, so I'm going to just walk into those, that line enclosure real quick, just to patch up this hole. I was like, yeah, you got this. We're good. I'll throw chickens. This is obviously a completely safe situation. We got this. And I think it was just, you always like, I mean, like you were talking, you are so knowledgeable about what you do. You had so much confidence going in that we had no room to question like the decisions you were making. And yeah. we just completely trusted you with everything. Like a line escaped and we we're still like, nothing would have ha- happened. Ants got us. Ants there. Ants there. <laughs> he would have carried the lion back <laughs> into the enclosure. And Emma would have been screaming at him, do not go into the lion enclosure so what, what i do is it's calculated risks it's the same you guys <laughs> calculated risk that's such an ant thing to say but but it is it's a it's yeah. a i know i understand what could happen and i don't i know it looks like i take chances but i i limit the chances i think about what i'm doing and i think about what the animal's doing what he's thinking and i use that but i, I don't want it to come across that i'm a, a cowboy that's blase and wants to show off. I think about what I do and I think everybody understands that now that it's not just some crazy I have thought about it. I think the only time that I've I've lost my thinking to a little to a degree was when you guys were there and that lion got killed. Yeah. yeah. And I arrived that night and I wanted to go get his body and that was thinking back now, that was about the stupidest thing I wanted to try. I remember it was it was Tom that I was stopping me trying that. to say you're gonna die today. Because I wanted to get his body out of there, I just couldn't yeah. handle the fact that they were what they were doing to his body. So that was maybe the one time I had a a, a, a lack of judgment moment. Emotions got involved, but normally I'm I'm careful with what I do. I'm not I'm not a lion tamer. I'm not a lion whisperer. I really do understand what they what they're thinking and how they see the world. But I'm by no means a a special person that has some ability to to work with lions more than anybody else. I just, I just know them well and I'm careful with what I do and I have to do certain things. We have to get it done. I agree with all that, but you are definitely special in a good way. Oh, okay, that sounded <laughs> like an special. insult for a split second. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit. But, I mean, if anyone else had the job that you had, it wasn't even a job. You didn't have to do this. You just did. And I don't think that many other people could have been in your shoes and not given up. And no matter how dire the situation was getting towards the end, you didn't give up. And I think that's such a testament to who you are and how much you love animals and wildlife and just doing the right thing. So yeah, I give you major props. So why don't you walk us through, and these are some of my favorite stories, how you even got into wildlife and raising cheetahs how did a young ant come upon this field yeah we're going back a long time now um it's, i was i was 18 five years ago so it's five years ago um <laughs> okay uh, we I, I i haven't told much many people this i had a, i had serious dyslexia when i was younger and 
I really struggled with reading. It wasn't dyslexia for the, the same reasons as most people are, but there was something that prevented me from reading. I was struggling to read. I really couldn't write well. I couldn't spell. And at, at a certain point, I mean, I was still doing well at school. I was hiding it. I was, I was able to recall when somebody speaks, I could remember almost everything. So I could get away with it, but at a certain point it was coming out. And at the same time, I, I hated living where we lived. The city was a horrible place. I hated the buildings. I hated the pollution, the noise. So I decided when I was young, I want to work in the bush one day. I want to work with animals. And I started watching documentaries. And then I started seeing movies, not movies, but like documentaries of people doing more hands-on work. And they became my role models. I wanted to do what they do. And then I found a book which was called The Last of the Free by a, a person called Gareth Patterson. And I forced myself to read this book because I wanted to read this. There was no movie. There was no choice. I had to read this book. And halfway through the book, things just started coming right. I could read it. And it was like, bam, something clicked in my head and I could read this book. So I started reading every book I could written by people that had real experience, not just like fashion stuff and that. And I decided this is what I'm going to do. So I started writing letters to all these people. I was in grade eight. And I started writing letters telling them that when I get older, I'm going to come and work for you. And uh, I never got any responses, obviously. I'm sure they get millions of these, but I kept up with it and I was persistent. And eventually, one of them came back to me and said, okay, well, let's see what happens when you when you finish school. Finish school and let's see what happens. I also managed to get myself into a a very good range of training program, again, because I was just so persistent. I was still in school and I managed to go work for them during my school holidays. And so I did really well there. Through that person that I was telling you about, that author that had written these books about lions, I wrote him more letters and he got me a, a job in a lion sanctuary. At, I was 18 years old. He got me this job and I immediately took it, went there and things didn't go well for the family owning the place. They Something happened in their personal life and I found myself alone on this farm managing lions at 18 years old with no money. They couldn't, they couldn't afford to pay me. I felt sorry for them. I, I, they really were good people. They were not bad people. And they were, it was out of their control what had happened. Um, but they asked if I wanted to stay. They would fully understand if I left and came back when things came right. And I said, no, I'll stay. I'll see what I can do. While I was there, I made friends with the neighbor who was talking about shooting a leopard because it was killing his cattle. And I was arguing with him saying, how, but how dare you shoot this leopard? You're farming in a wildlife area. It's the leopard's room, not yours. And we had a big argument about it. And he said, well, why don't you try and catch it and see if you can do anything about it? Because I told him to move it. And that's how this thing started. I, he challenged me and I said, fine, I'll do it. And things just started from there. Like people heard that I'd managed to catch a leopard that was already trained against being caught because he had been, people had failed to catch him. They caught him in a cage. He got out. They tried to poison him. He survived. So he, he would become, they become wary. They, they call them schooled. So once a leopard gets to that stage, you're never going to catch him because he's schooled. And I managed to catch this leopard eventually. And we How? moved him. I, eventually, I moved onto the farm and I followed this, this leopard for, it, was, it took a long time. It was about a month. And I just followed every day, followed the tracks, followed what he was doing. And eventually, I found one of his kills. And I used the kill to catch him because I know that I'm not going to get him into a, into a, a capture cage with just random meat. They don't trust it anymore. But by finding a kill that he had just made, it was persistence, just following all the time. I know I must have been close here. I think he ran off the kill when he saw me coming because they're quite shy. I managed to drag that back to the cage and I put it in the cage. And there's this, it's like a possession thing with animals that kill. Once they've killed something, it's there. They've worked hard for it. It's their meat. So he, I knew he'd try and go in and he did. He tried to get the meat, caught the leopard, 
and we moved him safely to a game reserve. But that was the start of everything. People just started calling me out the woodwork. Please can I help them with this. Please can I help them with that. And then somebody asked me to do cheetahs, and uh, I went and consulted with like this is I'm still 18 years old. Oh I went and God. spoke to like the cheetah experts in the country, and they said to me they'll they'll lend me the cages and stuff, but they gave me zero chance of catching them because at that stage they're still quite difficult to catch. You hadn't worked out all the tricks yet, and just thinking outside the box and and using other methods to catch them, I caught two cheetahs one day, two males. We moved them to a, another reserve, and I then started working with this group because they were they were happy with the way I was catching. I was very soft in my approach. It's not a harsh just catch to catch. I would try and make it as soft as possible. I'd make sure that there's no sharp edges in the cages. I try and protect the animal when they're in the cage. And I would check my cages regularly. In times that I knew that the cheetahs wouldn't come, I would check so that if I had caught a cheetah, it didn't stay in a cage for longer than it needed to. I even at one stage, I took a cell phone and I broke it up and I made it phone me. This is long before things like automatic alarms and stuff like that. I made my cell phone phone me. I made a little syringe an elastic that would be pulled and then that would push the button to dial me so I knew that the animal was in the cage so he doesn't spend any longer than he needs to be there. So that became quite successful. Wait, go over that again. You rigged a phone to call you so it served yeah. as an alarm? Yeah. Okay. So in, the, in, the, in those days, phones had buttons. There were no touch screens and they were numbers. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't letters. So I, I made a board and I stuck my phone to this board and then I made a rig that I cut off the front end of a syringe. So it was just the plunger that would come through like a finger because it had to be like a finger. And then I put it a matchstick to hold it open, but an elastic to pull it closed. And then I tied the matchstick to the gate of the cage. So when the cage draw, door dropped, it would pull the matchstick out and the elastic would be would push this plunger and the plunger would push my number, which was an auto dial. So that's how I, I love knew. that he remembers exactly how he did it. He's yeah. like, these are one of my proudest moments. <laughs> Home alone. Wow. Okay. So, and that worked and that started getting like a bit of recognition. People realized that I'd do my best to try and not harm these animals. It wasn't just a job. And I started working with different groups and it went really well. And I found some cheetahs that had been caught right against the border in Botswana and been being kept in horrible conditions. And I negotiated with the farmer and I said to him, let me move these cheetahs. I then was asked if I'm going to release them, I need to habituate them. Because obviously they'd come out of a terrible situation. They were totally wild, caught and then treated badly. So there was a concern that the cheetahs would just get onto the reserve, break out and disappear and go get killed, killing uh, sheep or something. So I agreed to radio collar them. And then I followed these cheetahs for months. Every single day, I just walked behind them, follow them. The male didn't do very well, which is a whole long story all on his own. But the female did exceptionally well. And uh, I would just follow her every day and let the reserve know where she is and what she's doing. But it got to the point where she just she just accepted my presence and I could sit next to her and go to sleep next to her and she would just be there, totally wild cheetah. And you would go to sleep one next day, to her where? Like in the wild? In the bush. It did get bloody hot during the day. So I'd track her <laughs> down in the mornings. But now we're really far from a vehicle, so I just waited until it gets a bit cooler. So I'd sit against the tree and read my book. And sometimes I'd fall asleep next to her and she was just I think she was comfortable with me because it meant that none of the other predators would give her any trouble. She was very relaxed and we had a great relationship. She just allowed me to do this with her. But then we had some big floods and she crossed the river onto a very small corner of the reserve, a fenced corner. And she crossed this river and the river came down. So she couldn't cross back. It was a tiny little area. And she gave birth to three cubs 
on a little termite mound in this flooding area. So I would go in and out every day because I could go around on the roads and cross over bridges and go see her. And I noticed that there was something very wrong with these cubs. They, they, they couldn't sit still. They were going crazy. They were moving all over the place. And they were never sleeping. And these are newborn cubs. It makes no sense. And I, I got a bit closer. She was less comfortable with me in the beginning. But eventually, she let me get within a, a meter of her. So I could take some photos. And I took photos of the cubs and some video. And I took it to a very famous cheetah vet. That's probably the most famous cheetah vet in the country. And when we zoomed in, we, we noticed the ants were eating them. The ants were literally eating these cubs alive. And there was nothing. It, it was just, just water everywhere. Everything had moved onto the high ground. She couldn't move the, the cheetahs away. She couldn't move her babies away because she was trapped. And it was on a termite mound. And these, these bloody ants were just nonstop biting these little cheetahs. And that's why they were moving the whole time, trying to get around. And she was constantly licking them. So I went back again and I noticed that the little female, her whole nose had already been eaten away. All the black flesh was gone. Aww. It was just pink flesh and bone. So I filmed them again and... I spent a long time with her and I could hear them coughing. They were, they were coughing these little cheetahs. So I took it back to the vet and he confirmed that he thinks they got uh, pneumonia. And there is, he gave them zero chance of survival with what they were going through. He said they will die. We need to dart her and move her to the other side. And in those days, there was a belief, it was written, that if you manhandled a cheetah or her cubs, she would not take her cubs back. So after the darting, you can give her her cubs back. She's going to abandon them and going to die. And the vet said to me, we have to make a decision. It's not just any, any old predator. It's cheetahs, one of the most endangered carnivores in the world. We can't just allow healthy genes. Even though they're in a bad state, they were healthy genes. We can't just allow these healthy genes to just pass away. So we're going to have to make a decision. If we take them away, we're going to have to hand raise them. And I spoke to the reserve who actually owned the cheetahs and told them. And they asked me if I do that because I could literally just walk up. At this stage, I could actually handle the cubs. She would let me touch them and she wouldn't which is crazy so, that this mother just let you touch the cubs which i'm sure if uh, anyone else had tried what would she have done if that if it was anyone else well they asked me to do this because she was i mean she just i mean they, they're not life-threatening animals they're not big enough to to kill you you can fight them off but they're very aggressive and they show off and they make a huge song and dance and people worried it was going to go wrong she might try and pick up the cubs and run away while we're trying to move them so they asked me if i'd do this for them and I agreed that I'd do it, but I said, I'm not raising pets here. I'm not bringing people pets. That They must go back into the wild. That's, that's the rule if I get involved here. And I'll help. I'll get them back into the wild, but they must go back into the wild. So at this stage, I'm 19 now. So we agreed to this. I moved into this little hovel of a place. I had to barricade it up so when the lions came around, they couldn't get into the cheetahs because there were wild lions in the area. And uh, I raised these cubs. And it went well. We had some crazy stuff happen. I wasn't allowed to walk with firearms. So I had to walk in this big five game reserve with my cheetahs every day. I wasn't allowed to use firearms or anything because I, I didn't actually work for the reserve anymore. One day, the male lion killed one of my cheetahs, Max. And at that stage, I had to move back into the bush with the other one because cheetahs, males bond for life and they have very, very close bonds. And they, they can actually pine to death almost if one if they lose one. They spend so much time looking and waiting for the other one that their body gets to the point where they can't hunt in the wild anymore. So I had to move in to the bush with my other cheetah, uh, re-establish my bond with him. And I lived with him like that for about, it was about four or five months that every night I would spend in the bush with him. And then during the day when it was really hot, I'd go home, shower, and do some stuff that I normally had to do. But as soon as it would get cool again, I'd move into the bush with him to try and move him because that male lion was trying to kill him. 
was hunting him. It was literally looking for him to kill it. So I'd move this cheetah up and down. And if he'd kill, I'd park my vehicle next to it. And I'd sleep on the back of the car. And he'd sleep in the bush eating his food. And if I'd check the every every hour, I'd wake up and check the, the radio collar signal. So I had an alarm that would wake me up every single hour. I'd wake up, do a quick check. If the lions weren't in the area, I'd go back to sleep. If they were there, I'd have to move him. They were getting close. And it was easy to move him. I mean, he'd jump in the car with me and I could drive him. But if he'd killed, he was going nowhere. And he just jumped into the car the way, with you. Yeah, he'd just jump in and drive. And I took the back seats out and he'd sit in the back and watch where we'd go. And it was weird. I mean, we were doing this almost every second night, three o'clock in the morning. I'm driving across this game reserve, cheater in the back. And if he'd kill, I'd put his food on the back. And that was the only way I could get him to go. Initially, I had to bring the food into the car. I had to literally bring this kill into the car to get him to understand that we're not leaving the food. And then eventually he got used to it and I could put the kill on the back and I could drive him he out. He let you touch the food? Oh, yeah. So that was what, from the beginning, I made sure that they didn't mind me handling their food. But I didn't use dominance. So the technique when you raise a big cat is food is possession. The boss has possession. And a lot of trainers will force their dominance over an animal that they're working with. Even though it's their food, it's a thing that the trainer must chase the, the cat off the food and then let him come back because then basically you, you claim the food and then you're letting him eat it. So that, that assumes, that assures dominancy, dominancy and it makes you the boss and you're in less danger if you're working in confines because the animal respects you, they say. I hate this. I think it's a disgusting practice and I think there's other ways to do it. So with my cheetahs, I could take food out of their mouth. They could kill it and I could actually literally tug on the food and they'd open their mouth and give it to me and I could do stuff with it and I could take it away. And, with this cheetah, some nights, if he killed in a place where I couldn't get my car and the lions were close, I'd have to walk in at night with a torch and I'd have to pick up whatever he's killed. If it was small, it was easy, but if it was big, I used to drape this half-dead-opened animal over my shoulders <laughs> and then walk him back to my car, throw the kill on the back, and he'd jump inside with me. And uh, a couple of times that went wrong. Um, I, the lions were in the area, and you never walk at night with predators. And the lions were close. So I had to switch my torch off because I was scared they're going to see my torch. And I, had to, I was whispering to him and I'd have his kill over my shoulders and I'd grab his back leg and I'd pick his back leg up because then he wouldn't try and run. And I was scared he was going to bolt into the lions and I, I don't have control of what's going on. So I'd walk with a cheetah in my one hand, like his back leg, and I'd have this animal over my shoulders. <laughs> and a couple of times we, we, we really got close. We nearly bumped in. And every now and then somebody would come and help me and they reported this to the reserve management. Reserve management called me and said, you can't carry on. You're going to die. This is this is ridiculous what you're doing. So I was saying, well, I don't care. I don't mind dying. These are my cheetahs. This is my cheetah. I'm, I'm, I'm willing. I'm not going to hold you responsible. Oh, yeah. And the reserve guy said to me, it's not about you. We we Obviously, we'd care if you died. We it's don't about care you, if you die, Ant. Yes. <laughs> yes. But if our lions kill you, then we have to put down the lions. And it's a massive thing. And no one can go into the game reserve. And So from that point of view, I had to stop what I was doing. So they gave me a few months to move him. They gave me a really nice big enclosure. It was 100 hectares. Big, big area. Nice. That I could put the cheetah in there and I had a certain amount of time to move the cheetah. So I found a place which was in all days. That's how I got to all days. Oh. And the owner there said, I can bring my cheetah but I must get the permit. And then I started applying for permits and the department were being stupid about this. They were, I mean, this depart- I've always had arguments with them because I do stuff and get it right and they didn't like what I was doing and so I applied for my permit and they said, no, they won't give me the transport permit. I had to research why they won't give me my permits. And the only thing that was wrong was the transport permit. So I wrote them a letter one day. I did a lot of research. 
I contacted all the farms between me and the farm in old age. And I found a route that these guys would let me walk. And it was 300 and something kilometers. And I'd, I'd have to walk over, I, I estimated three months. I had to build in time for if we have to feed him, he can't walk. And I estimated three months we're going to walk. And I was going to walk this cheetah because then I'd, I'd broken no laws. I didn't need to transport him. He's following me. Now he'll go anywhere with me. I don't even have to call him. He will follow me. So I wasn't even manipulating his movements. I really researched this. And I said, guys, I'm going to walk this cheetah. And he said, no, you can't. And I argued him. Said, yes, I can. There's no laws that will be broken. The cheetah will walk with me. And he's a free-roaming animal. He's classified as wild. Why can't he walk? And they laughed at me in the beginning. Then they started realizing I'm getting serious because there were some farmers sympathetic to this whole thing. And the guy where I was moving it to thought I was insane, but he wanted to see what's going to happen. And then I got a hold of a, with my other stuff that I'd done, there was a film crew that used to sometimes film what I do. And I told them what I'm going to do. And they said they'd like to film this. And I called the department back and I, I sent them a letter actually and said, what's going to happen is I'm just informing you. I'm going to start walking this cheetah and I'm going to walk into a new reserve. And every time we have to cross the main road and every time something goes wrong, every, every disaster that happens, this could go horribly wrong. One of us could get killed. If this goes wrong, every time I'm going to be interviewed by this film crew. And every single time they're going to say, but why the hell are you doing this? I'm going to say, because this, and I mentioned his name, this idiot in this department refuses to give me a transport letter. <laughs> and then I got my permits. <laughs> so from there, I got my permits and I moved the cheetah. And that's how I got to all days. And I started working with the cheetahs there. And I, we spent 10 years on that project in the end. But the work that I promised I'd do is if I was there, I would get the cheetahs that do use his farm used to people enough so that his guests could see them. So at least therefore he was getting some value out of these cheetahs killing his game. And it got to the point where <laughs> the cheetahs were bringing in enough money to sustain what they were killing. So that I, I called it, I, I, I termed it, I want to pay rent for the cheetahs. We make the cheetahs <laughs> pay their own rent. So because farmers look at cheetahs very differently to conservationists, they look at them as thieves. They come in, they kill their animals and they go. So you can't tell them that they've got a right to be there. So that's why I thought of, well, let's say that we'll pay rent for them. And eventually they would pay, they, they would bring in more income than what they would use. So we, we ran that project for 10 years. And it was while I was in this area, I heard about the lions. Um, I've always been passionate about lions. I've always loved lions. It's just cheetahs and, and leopards were what dragged me away the whole time. About the yes. cheetahs, I think that's such a perfect example of how innovative and creative and strategic you need to be to have like a symbiotic relationship between the wildlife and the farmers and community members there. Um, which again, I'm not sure how many other people would do that. Well, it worked really well. And it was thinking out the box to, I listened to the problem. That, that was the trick that we found. Even with the lions, when you're working with lion breeders, I mean, obviously I totally disagree with what they do, but the trick was to listen. And, and understand how they feel about it. Because if we don't, if they don't agree with me, they're not going to work with me. It doesn't matter how much I care and how much I protest, I'm going to be shut up. Because the minute you listen to their side and they go, but this is how I make my living and this is my problems. And you show like you, you, you're willing to listen, then they're willing to listen to you. And then you gain their trust to show, look, I'm not here to, to shame you or to make you look bad or to get you into trouble. I'm purely here to try and help these lions. And yeah. I understand your side, but now let me help the lions. Yeah. And it's the same with the cheetahs. I used to be very outspoken. I used to be willing to get into to fights over these things where people would shoot predators that are free roaming. And all it would mean is I would get damaged. <laughs> I wasn't changing anything. 
They weren't yeah. listening to me. People, especially when you don't own the land that you're telling people what to do with, they go, who the hell are you? You don't pay the bills. It's not your animals they're eating. How dare you this come and call year the old shot? kid. However exactly. old you so were. I learned to listen to them, listen to these people yeah. and hear their side and then try and come up with a solution that's going to work for both. And it's worked in almost everything I've done. And I think that explains how you were able to be so calm by the time that we met you, because understanding more of your backstory, I can definitely imagine a young aunt being like a firecracker and like getting in fights with everybody. Um, but I see how you would have to learn to work with your community members. There are just a lot of different needs and issues that people had and and having to work with everybody to um, to make sure that people could still function and keep their farms and also keep the wildlife happy. Yeah, if we, if we don't find the balance, we're going to lose it all. I, I do believe that. Um, there has to be a balance. I have my views, but I have to accept that others have theirs, and we have to meet in the middle. Um, uh, this area is a tough area when it comes to the, the approach. It's farmers that have, have been farming this area since the early 1900s. They've farmed against the elements, uh, politics, wildlife, everything you can name it. They've, they've had to fight it, not fight, but they've had to farm against it. So they're hardened. They know what they're doing. And to now come and try and tell them that they must see animals differently is almost impossible. But what I've found is money, money talks. And if you can find a way to show them that, listen, if you do this my way, you might actually at least cover your costs or make some money. Um, and you have to fight less against the land and work with it to try and make some money. And it, it's maybe a 0.1% that listens to me, but it's another 0.1% that's keen to do these things. And, and if, if my a lot approach of works with 0.1%, that, and yeah. exactly, and another guy comes up with another idea and networks with another 0.1%, we keep adding it up, suddenly we've got 10% of the people listening to us. Um, at the same time, there's always pressures that are being put on farmers in this area from politics or droughts or weather and by doing it our way we say well that that kind of drops these you're not fighting these things anymore now you're just working with your land can you explain the community of all days and those surrounding areas because i remember when ava and i were there it felt so divided between the types of people that were there there were hunters and then there are locals but even among the locals there were so many different types of groups and then there were the ants of the world. <laughs> um, so it just felt like there are so many different cultures and groups and conflicting interests and histories. It was super diverse. How did you handle that? All Days is a, a unique place. It's only got about two, two and a half thousand people. But I, I tell you, it's got more happening there in terms of social dynamics than most places in the world. You have your traditional farming community, which are old school farmers been farming this area for generations um they've got a very specific view on life then you've got your your new farmers that have come into the area to make money they've come with money and bought land and they want to make money it's a very different group and then you've got your your local african people that are living in all day's town and working on these farms and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't um i can't speak for everybody but i can speak for what we've experienced we also don't just do lions, but uh, we're quite involved with community projects for the less advantaged, and especially with Emma, all her work that she does with the school, and she's, she's got a project in every. She's very exactly the same. It's just wildlife and people. 
she'll hear of a problem, she'll come up with a solution and go fix it, not wait for someone to do it for her. And by doing that, by helping one group, you rub the other group up wrong. Then you help that group and then this group's upset with you. And we find that it's very hard to get people to come together and just understand everybody else's problems. And we've been trying to fill that role where we go from one group to the next group and then suddenly people that were willing to work with us on one thing suddenly don't want to work with us at all because of the other thing. I'm not good with people as I am with certain animals. And <laughs> I sometimes struggle to balance these things. I, yeah. I don't see the I don't see the science. I don't see somebody getting difficult or changing their minds. I don't see it in time, and uh, I wish I could, but I don't. And that sometimes can make it very difficult working in this area. But there are some really awesome people that have really supported us, that we really support. Um, so it's not I, I've changed from saying it's all days. It's now there's some people in all days, but there are yeah. there are some people that are also absolutely yeah. amazing. The fact that you are acting as a catalyst and a proponent for a change in a very difficult community at times. The few minds that you have changed, I think that's um, really big and really powerful. I got told by somebody and he, he said it to me afterwards that he realized he thought I might be insulted by it. And he said to me, I'm telling this to you as a compliment. He said, you're a hopeless optimist. <laughs> and I, I did actually think it was a bit insulting in the beginning, but he meant it in a nice way saying that there's, doesn't matter what happens, you've got to be optimistic and try and find the solution in yeah. the problem. And that's what we've done with the Lions, especially with the Lions. Even though the, the big picture looked hopeless, we had to not look at the big picture and just look at what was in front of us working towards a better big picture. But yeah. uh, if I'd looked at the big picture first, I would have walked away and just been depressed about it. Um, so that's the way to look at all these problems. And it's not just here, it's everywhere in the world. Yeah. Find the, find the hope in it and, and work towards that. And the rest of it kind of falls into place behind it. I love that. Is it true that, not is it true because I know it's true because you told me, so I hope it's true. But Ant's actually been lying to us this entire time. <laughs> um, that going back to the cheetahs, that they would pee on your bed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so cheetahs, <laughs> my cheetahs would pee on my bed, but I, I know for a fact that they just urinate when they get comfortable sometimes. Um, but it was also a way to, I think to make themselves feel more, not more comfortable, but th th it would be a familiar smell to them after they'd urinate on the bed. And then it got to the point where they weren't allowed on the bed anymore because of this. I mean, when I say a bed, it wasn't like I had a nice bed in the bush. I had a futon mattress on the ground um, and it wasn't a very comfortable mattress. But what they would do is they would test the waters now because now I refuse to let them sleep on the bed anymore because when a, when a, 10-week-old cheetah urinates in your bed, it's a puddle. When an 18-month-old cheetah male and his brother both urinate on your bed, it's a disaster. And then it happens again and again and again, and I'm living in an area that gets to 40 degrees some days, and I live in a shack because there wasn't anywhere else for us to live because I had to be away from people. So when you've got big cheetahs urinating on a futon mattress in a hot box for three months, it becomes unbearable. So after trying to clean the mattress, the, the rule was they're not allowed on the mattress because they wouldn't pee in the house. They wouldn't pee in the shack. It was just when they were on the mattress. Otherwise, cheetahs are very much like cats. So the rule was they weren't allowed on the bed anymore. And if they slept on the floor, they wouldn't urinate. At one stage, they'd learned that they're not allowed on the bed, but they wouldn't let go of this. They loved it. So while I'd be sleeping, especially the one cheetah, his name was Iggy. He was the one that was closest to me. 
I would I would watch him out the corner of my eye because he'd wake me up when he starts shuffling around, and then he'd put one paw on the mattress, and then he'd hold it there until he thinks that I'm used to the new weight shift and the change, and then <laughs> ten minutes later he'd put his next paw on the mattress, and he'd put his head on the mattress, and he keeps dead still. And then 10 minutes later, he'd slowly stiffed some of his body weight and he put his first back leg on. And after about 20 minutes or so, he's got his whole body on. And he, as he brings his last foot up and he thinks I'm asleep, he rolls over and he starts purring from happiness. <laughs> she just purrs like a diesel engine. It's really loud. And then I kick him off again. And then this whole process would start again. But I'd laugh because he's so clever in what he's doing. But at the last minute, he's just so silly. He lets me know. But I just, it was getting to the point where I had to, I had to make a decision. The cheaters are part of my life, but there has to be limits of how far because it was getting, it was getting tough for certain things. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Is this story true? Because I might've made this story up. Um, that. The bald spot? What bald spot? Oh, never mind. I, I just remember Ant saying once that you had gotten a bald spot in the back of your head oh because of cheetahs licking I your head. That. Is that true? <laughs> it's very true. Um, it's grown back a lot, but Charlie still says it's there. You're still healing from it. It, it seems like it's getting bigger again, and I don't have cheetahs anymore. Um, but what they would do is a cheetah's tongue is extremely rough, so it's like a cat times 20. And they use it to pluck the hair out of the, the, the animals that they kill before they open it up. And as a comfort thing, they would groom me. And it's, it's how they form bonds as well. But my skin and a cheetah skin and my hair and a cheetah's hair is very different. So they'd groom me from both sides. And then one of them would focus on the top of my head. They'd sit above me because they're very tall. And they'd lick my head if I was, if I was on, the, on the ground. Or that's when I used to drive that cheetah away from the lions at night, he would sit behind me and lick my head while I'm driving. And I would let him because it means he's focused on my head and not focusing on what's going on. And he would sit behind me and lick my head the whole time while we're driving. And sometimes he'd regurgitate on me as well because he's just killed and he's got all this fresh meat. And now we're driving and he'd regurgitate down my back and on my neck like this. And <laughs> I'd have to just try and scoop it off and check it and then keep going. And then he'd lick my head. It's, it's, there's been some crazy times, but that did cause some trouble for my hairline. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, can you... Can you tell us about uh, some of the other projects that you guys worked on besides Lion Project and Emma's work and your guys' work with the schools? Okay, so well, Emma's work, I'll start with that. Um, being a, a, a mixed-race couple, it, it wasn't always easy in a community that's still very old-school and ultra-conservative. But Emma is, is a very social person. You've met her. So she's, she's able to make friends with, with the community much faster than I was. And they accepted her a lot. It, it was actually really good and better than what we expected. Yeah. And then we had the kids and the kids were getting a bit older. And we realized we can't go to the local school because it's not a mixed race school in any way. And there's, there's religion barriers and language barriers and all sorts of things. I don't know that that was the reason why. Yeah. They weren't allowed to go in those well, schools or it was just like a socially, a it would have been thing. uncomfortable for them. Socially, it's, it's socially, it wouldn't have worked. Um, but yeah. we were, we were, we were, we were offered a, a place there. They did offer us a place there and they said they were going to make an exception for Charlie. And when somebody said that to me, that made me really angry 
because I don't want my child thinking that somebody did a favor for her. She has the right like everybody else. So yeah. I said, no, I'm not doing this if it's a favor. And it was literally said to me, it was, and I mean, it was in a, it was in a pub. We'd had some drinks. It wasn't like a proper formal conversation. And this person said to me, but, but what, the, what, what, the, what the hell will you do? There's no other options. The government school in the area is a disaster. It's an absolute mess. There's no level, there's no level of education. I'll just say it straight. I said, look, if we have to, we'll start our own damn school. And it literally took hold from a bar pub conversation. Well, we'll start our own school then. And uh, we registered a school. Three months later, we opened and we started with 10 kids. And Emma, Emma took over. It was a very quick thing that I said, oh, we'll start a school. How hard can it be? I still remember saying, how hard can it be? 10 times harder than any Lion or Rhino project. I'll tell you that. The paperwork alone is incredible. Emma was making it work. So she took over. She's now the principal of the school. And she's taken it from 10 kids to, I think this year we're on 55. And next year we're expecting wow. to be on 70. We're very proud of what the school's done. Um, and yeah. it's, a, it's the first multi-race school in our area, not just because of the law, but because people are choosing to be multi-race in the school. Obviously, by law in South Africa, no school can say it's not multi-race. It's against the law. But things happen, languages, okay. religions, social dynamics can still create divides. And we're the first school that's multiracial in our area by choice. And so we're very proud of that. And it's working well. The school's working very well. And with that, Emma's done a lot of community projects where she she does all sorts of things. She identifies families that need help and finds ways to help them that are as meaningful, not just the usual give, some, give a, a box of groceries at the end of the month, but she finds ways to fix problems and work with their family issues. And we've run vet projects. I remember the vet project because it was just one day we just devoted to taking care of the dogs. And it's like, all right, we're taking a break from the lions today and we're just doing good old veterinary care for dogs in the communities. And we were like, we're doing something normal. <laughs> I feel I strange. Mean, how normal was it? I just remember being in the back of the truck with Eric, just like <laughs> walking into houses, asking for people's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and then just like a random kid just coming in like holding his dog we had like 15 people in the back of the truck we drove him back and did vet care and then dropped him off again yeah, yeah. so normal's relative i mean compared to everything else we did and we couldn't understand what eric was saying to people's families but it seemed like a negotiation yeah. that was happening like a are your parents home? We're, we're just going to take the dog for an hour. Don't even worry about Don't it. Don't even worry. <laughs> so, so Bring him back good as some new. Some people would obviously come to us for help. But uh, yeah. there is still a feeling of mistrust. Like, why is people just coming for free offering vet care? So it takes a while for people to trust you. Yeah. And then there's those groups where you want to help the dog, but the owner doesn't really realize they need help. And those are the ones, like yeah. the ones with skin conditions, the ones that have got like, I mean, we, we once found a dog with its eye hanging out. It was just hanging out. And nobody was doing anything, hoping the dog was going to be okay. And we had to negotiate to take the dog so that we could fix it. And so that's what you must probably saw with Eric is when we see a bad animal and the owners aren't really interested in the vet care, then we've got to kind of not force the situation, but convince them that to let us do this care because the, dog's, the dog needs it. And then some of it is the owners desperately need the help and they bring the dogs to us. And on the third or fourth year of that, it started working well with people started trusting those days are good yeah. days. And that's part of like our project. So you guys came out on a set line volunteer project and 
I'm moving away from that completely now. So I don't want to do set projects anymore. It's basically a life experience. You come out and experience what we're doing on the day because some people will get to us and That is complain. what the line experience was. It was well, not, that's it. This is a set day. This is what's going to happen. Complain. People will complain, complain that what? It was that, that, that I would one day we'd go do dogs in the community. They go, but I booked a line project. Yeah. I want a schedule. And that's another thing. Normal volunteer projects can give you a schedule for a three-week period. You're going to be up for three weeks. On this day, you'll do this. And every day, they will tell you what you'll yeah. do. I won't even be able to tell you what you're going to do on day one when you get here. Because <laughs> I'm going to do what we need to do on the day. I'm not just going to make a, a plan and stick to it whether something's going wrong or not. So I'm changing it from a, yeah. a volunteer project to a, a life experience project different volunteer projects. They would give you an exact schedule on Sunday, the 18th, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. This is what you are doing. Yeah. And your website was just... <laughs> Good luck. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I was just Please. like, you'll come down. We don't know if you'll go back, but... <laughs> <laughs> you'll come down. Um, and I really was drawn to that. I didn't want something that was geared towards tourists, giving you the happy, bright side of things. I wanted to get deep in the mud, um, and yeah, like you said, it wasn't, it wasn't a project. It was more of an experience. Yeah. What is the takeaway that you have if people think you put in all this effort and time and in the end, they ended up continuing to be in the canned hunting industry? What is the takeaway that you have? And if it was worth it? it I, I just still worth it. I'll never, I'll never back down on that. Those animals while I was there, their quality of life changed completely um and i had this argument with a vet once saying they wouldn't another vet wouldn't help me because they didn't agree with what the owner was doing and i said but how does that affect the animal how well, how does the animal have any responsibility for what the owner is going to do to him you can't take away care from an animal because the guy that owns them is, is doing bad things with them yeah. and now what must be considered is I don't know if you've heard, but there's a directive been put through from government that canned lions must now be stopped completely. Breeding and hunting of canned of lions in South Africa has to stop within a certain amount of time. And they're putting in a framework into that now. So that's not that's not a great thing. In term, it's a very good thing, but there's going to be serious problems with the with the worst of the lion breeders. They're going to just abandon their lions. I think those lions are going to go through worse before this ends, then better. It's not going to be, oh, let's look yeah. after them now. They're going to just be abandoned. We're going to have a lot of tragedy. Probably illegal, yeah. illegal hunting. Exactly. Or that people just to spite government. Farmers are like that. They'll go, oh, you know what? You want to tell me I can't do this? This is your problem. I'll walk away. And they'll just leave them to, to spite people. They'll just leave them. Um, but these lions that were at Walter's place, where they are now, I, I cannot see this person doing that because he's got a reputation to uphold. And he is more than capable of sustaining these lions in a in another way other than hunting. So I think they're actually quite lucky in the end. I think they they got to the right place. Um, I would have still liked to have had some of those lions that we'd worked hard to come to us without because we built these big new facilities for them. But so be it. At least they're better off. But I wouldn't change a thing. I, I would maybe try and... Yeah. I would have changed not trusting as much and thinking that contracts would hold up and things like that. Maybe that I would have changed, but why we went in there and what we tried to achieve, I wouldn't change. We did achieve what we needed to do there. What's your What's your plan next? What What's next for Vision Africa slash Lion Project slash just general experience? I'm optimistic about the next few years. I think it's going to be amazing. The nice thing is 
we have some filming being done at the moment. And if we're lucky, we'll get hopefully a six-part series on Netflix. And if we can get that on there, oh, it's going to so expose awesome. our projects, expose the work, expose the canned hunting industry. And the idea is to put a positive spin on it because everything that's ever been released has been so negative and so emotional that it almost turns people away from watching it because they don't want to see it because they can't help. So we want to explain the bad side, but show the positives and how it impacted just the individual lives that we've worked with. Did you watch Tiger King? I did. You did? I did. I'm shocked. It was lockdown. What were we going to do? Like you, you won't even watch Lion King without having a conniption, so I'm surprised. We watched, you probably had to pause it every five seconds. I watched seconds. Tiger King. I was horrified. Um, I considered maybe not letting anyone film my work after that, but I mean, what a character. And yeah. it's absolutely nothing of what we do. And unfortunately, people were more interested in the human aspect of it. Other, uh, very few people yeah. notice what's actually happening to these animals. It was all about the politics yeah. between people. Ava and I watched the first episode and couldn't even watch anymore. But we were outraged. We were like, tigers are solitary creatures. Why are there like 14 of them in one enclosure? It's so unsafe. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if I never went to South Africa, I would have watched Tiger King like everyone else. Yeah. And like, wow, these are such I would have wacky... sensationalized the people. Yeah, I, like these are such wacky characters and there just happens to be tigers there. Exactly. Um, and they felt very like prop to the story. Like it wasn't at all about the animals. Yeah. But I think because of our experiences actually watching the show, like I didn't care what he was talking about at all. Yeah. I was just looking at these... Tigers. like these yeah. tigers and i was just like and there were lions there yeah and yeah, there were like lion cubs a lot and, of lions. and i was just looking at it and i was just like this this can't be right like none of this i was be. like ant would have a thing or two to say about this i've had to take a long time to think about do we film because I, I don't know if you remember but i was quite adamant i don't want to be the feature of photos working with the animals i wanted it to be yeah. about the animals and i said if we ever film it has to be filmed without the human and from the point of view of the animal. Um, so, it, And then Tiger King proved that for me. I don't want it to be a, a human story that includes animals. It must be an animal story that includes humans. I'm not special. I don't have some ability where I can have this one-on-one -on -one connection with an animal and tell it what to do with my brain. I just, because of what I did with those cheetahs and in the environment that I did it, it was so dangerous, it was so hostile, I was young. I had no protection. The only way I could keep me and the cheetah safe was to learn to read their body language. And I had to find a way to teach them to read mine so they could understand when I do something, this is not interest, this is fear. You need to follow me. I don't have a chance to tell you. You need to get up and follow me. And I would watch them. They were my warning signs because they're much more alert than I was. So I'd be able to tell the difference between alert, fear, anger, amusement, just by looking at them. I could, see, I could read it. But it's not a... It's not a not a special ability that I'm psychic and I have a spiritual connection with an animal. I just out of necessity had to learn how to read them and therefore I got comfortable with them and, and, and worked out how to show them what I want and I can read their behavior. So yeah. with the filming, I have to make sure that we don't end up, I don't want a situation where people think I'm a lion whisperer. I'm not a lion whisperer. There is no such thing as a lion whisperer. I'm sorry. You just learn how to work with these animals, but you're not a lion whisperer. If anybody can speak lion, please come teach me. I've never learned how to speak lion. I can just communicate what I want, but I've never learned that language yet. That is something about 
conservation, whether wildlife conservation, land conservation, that people might not realize that you've had experience with and you'd like people to know? Um, well, definitely Africa is not what you see in the documentary. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't operate like that. Um, documentaries are amazing, but it's very localized, very small. The human-animal conflict is just bigger than ever. And we need to look for a new way to get people to coexist with wildlife. We're going to have to share the space or we're going to lose wildlife completely. That's where help is needed, is to find ways to, to protect animals where they are and find ways for people to, to coexist with them. I think you are just a testament of that hope and possibility to coexist, um, whether it's a different species or different people. Um, you've done a lot and really inspired us. I'm glad. That, that, that's what I, would, what I would have hoped for. So I'm, I'm glad. So I'm toasting with our Chai Life smoothie. Ava's oh. doing the fruiting for you. And Ant will take a, we'll pour one out for you. You have an honorary <laughs> <Okay>. toast. <laughs> um, but what words of advice can you give to listeners for how they can sow goodness in their communities, in their environments, um, whether it's local to them or abroad? No matter what, no matter what the issue is, no matter what the problem is, no matter how big it is, focus on the small things, and you'll end up fixing the bigger things. So don't let the don't let the big problem stop you from doing what you can to fix the smaller problems. Same as what we did with Alliance. It doesn't help to focus on the industry. Focus on the specifics and the individuals and keep doing it. Just keep keep going at it. Even if you make the tiniest change, it's still worth it to something or someone. Even if it's on an individual basis. And eventually the bigger changes will come. That was beautiful. Be a hopeless optimist. <laughs> I'm now making that my phrase. It's going to be the title of this episode. A hopeless optimist. A hopeless optimist. Yeah. <laughs>